Welcome to the Medical Affairs Professional Society's Medical Strategy and Launch Excellence Focus Area Working Group's four-episode podcast series, Medical Affairs Plans, from strategic planning to measuring impact. The views expressed in this recording are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of MAPS or the companies with which they are affiliated. This presentation is for informational purposes only and is not intended as legal or regulatory advice. This podcast focuses on the tactical components of building the medical affairs strategic plan. I am Monica de Abadar. Currently, I serve as the VP Medical Excellence at Ipsen. In addition, I co-lead the MAPS Medical Strategy and Launch Excellence Focus Area Working Group and have served as part of the MAPS EMEA Committee. The series podcast objectives are understand how the medical affairs strategic planning process can drive decision making throughout the year, gain insight into the value medical affairs bring across an organization when an effective, collaborative, online medical strategy plan is developed, obtain a working knowledge of how cross-functional teams within medical affairs can refer in strategic plans to inform decision-making and assess impact of efforts. In March 2020, at the MAPS annual meeting in Miami, a panel of medical affairs executives was convened to discuss MA strategic planning. Our panelists for the podcast are Peter Piero, MD, he serves as VP and Head, Medical Affairs Americas, GSK Consumer Healthcare. Aileen Sawyer, PhD. She is Vice President, Global Medical Affairs at Unicure. Anna Waltz, CEO of Medevoke. Len Valentino, President and CEO, National Hemophilia Foundation. As we all know, understanding of the disease and the treatment landscape is the basis of strategic planning. In the previous podcast episodes, we talked about the importance of strategic planning, but strategy needs to be implemented throughout a series of planned activities. So it's now down to tactics. I would like to ask our panelists to explain which tactics are most relevant and or most innovative. Aileen? So uh, Peter talked a little bit this earlier about the strategic side of um, developing the medical affairs plan, but that then needs to go into the tactical side. So this is really a process of taking a look at the gaps you identified, where it is that you want to be, and the path to get there, and determining exactly how you're going to do that. Um, you know, sort of rolling out a strategy that covers multiple channels, um, multiple different um, uh, functions within medical affairs in order to achieve those objectives. Um, and when you get to this level, it's very important that um, this be independent of the commercial, your commercial colleagues for compliance reasons. So we talked a little bit about aligning at the strategic level with your cross-functional partners. When it comes down to the nitty-gritty of exactly how you're going to accomplish those bigger strategic objectives, that needs to be within your medical team. Uh, and the other point I'd, I'd like to make is that it, it is very easy uh, for medical affairs to be viewed as a support function and, and just become very tactical. So that's why it's important, even in the midst of this process, to constantly be going back to your strategic plan and making sure that the tactics you're developing really are anchored to what you set out as the strategic objectives for your medical plan um, and not just be purely reactive to things that may be coming in. 
um, and maintain that focus on, on really what it is that needs to happen in order to get you from point A to point B. It's really important that, you know, besides having all the philosophical discussions about strategic planning, at some point we've got to put pen to paper and do. Um, and medical affairs traditionally do was always communicate something to the external world, and that was the primary function. But as time goes on, the responsibility is changing. Um, and it's not so much just what are we publishing, but what is the evidence generation plan? What do we need to prepare to do? How do we start to think about differentiating, not just today, but five years from now? We keep hearing in medical about evidence generation, right, versus just dissemination. And so how much time is being spent on that? How much time are you putting together real-world evidence plans, looking for patient-reported outcomes to be incorporated in trials? And I'll ask the panel, because I think this is an important shift in how we used to do things. Yeah, so if I think back to the, my early days, um, we'd always have, uh, you know, maybe one phase 3B or space 4 study and a small IAS program. But certainly now, especially in regard to access and payers, it really is about generating real-world evidence and working closely then within medical with our HUR counterparts who have that expertise to generate uh, more of the, I'll call it, non-traditional data. Um, so, yes, we've definitely ramped that up for sure. In fact, I think we do more of that now than we do of the old-style 3B4 studies. We also uh, do a fair amount of investing in investigator-sponsored research. Um, and uh, there's so much value in that in terms of hypothesis-generating studies, uh, engagement, uh, and building of relationships with these investigators. Um, and again, just that novel science that comes out of it. Um, the other part I'd say just relative to the second bullet is I don't think evidence dissemination has gone down. I think we're just added in more evidence generation because at the end of the day, a major part of what we do is, is around evidence dissemination, whether that be through a good pumps plan or through a great field medical plan or whatnot. So uh, it's really more of just evening out the balance uh, of generation and dissemination, at least in the way I've seen it. And, and maybe to sort of add to that point, I think for what I've seen, evidence generation is a really critical part, and it actually is not independent of your communication plan. And when you're out there learning what the KOLs, the patient communities, the payers, what, what data they need to see in order to understand your product, in order to use it appropriately, in order to get the best outcomes, that data isn't always coming out of your clinical trials. So we have to generate that, take those insights back in-house and figure out how to generate the data that's needed to support the community's needs ourselves in medical affairs and in partnership with the other departments, and then feed that back out to meet those, those needs that we heard from the community. Um, so it's really sort of this cycle um, of, of under, listening, understanding, generating data if needed, and then educating back out using the tools that we have. Yeah, and that's a really good uh, point to remind us that the tactics that we do today might look a little bit different than we did five years ago because the environment has shifted. And what about patient centricity? How should we think about interacting with the patients we serve? And where should this group sit? Yeah, it's, it, that's sort of the tradition where, you know, there's been a firewall created between the medical team 
and, you know, accessing patients. And, you know, we talk about being patient-centric, but when we start thinking about what that means, you know, for the 50 people in here, you probably get 50 different definitions. So what, so I also sit on a patient-centricity uh, working group for MAPS, and we did a survey of MAPS members, and there, the, the, the answers were all over the board. There was no consensus about what patient-centricity meant. So we're trying to understand what that is. So an unselfish plug um, is tomorrow or tomorrow, tomorrow and Wednesday. There's two working groups around patient centricity, works two workshops. And I think that it's really important to, to have some conduit between whoever has that patient relationship and medical affairs, because then you're going to get the inputs that you need. And, and remark on the fact that it seems increasingly the the lines between patients, physicians, payers, investors are blurring, and it's in this new digital space. And this is a place where they are sharing medical information with each other, discussing products, discussing the disease. And so I wanted to ask, how many of you are considering this in your medical planning? Are, are you considering a digital opinion leader or a digital component? So this was an area, so I came from Spark Therapeutics, and this was an area that we were actively working on when I left, which was to understand sort of the landscape of the digital opinion leaders. So we were doing some work in terms of mapping digital opinion leaders, and I was floored to see that the, the primary digital opinion leaders were not the KOLs that we were talking to. Oh. It was totally a different group. And I think that's really important to recognize, and you need to have an engagement plan for those digital opinion leaders as well as your key opinion leaders and then this morning we talked a little bit about there's a whole other group that needs to be considered in certain disease states. And your KOLs may be one group, but the actual prescribing physicians may be a very different group. And you have to have different uh, strategic and tactical plans to address those two audiences as well. So, or those three audiences, the KOL, um, the digital opinion leader, and then prescribing physicians in general, which are frequently primary care doctors. Anybody who is a newer physician was born with social media. And so they're not going to the medical conferences. They're actually on social media receiving tweets from the medical conferences. And whether that's good or bad, that's instant gratification for them because they can see the highlights. But that's the key is they're getting the highlights. They're not getting the depth science that, let's say, 20 years ago we were getting. So we want to understand those patterns. We want to understand how they're consuming the information, how they're digesting it, and how they're interacting with patients as a result. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating if you look at the number of tweets that come out about, um, for example, an article, a lead article in the New England Journal or in, you know, another, you know, uh, society uh, journal of high quality. You know, the, those those are tremendously followed by so many different people but they're, they're not providing that in-depth information. And I think a lot of our physicians are stopping at the tweet level and not really diving in for more information. That's and frightening. It, and it, it is. It's very frightening. And I think that really is, it, it engenders a lot of um, need on their part. And also it mo should be motivating some medical affairs groups to provide that type of education. By virtue of what I do professionally, I can also tell you how many times Dr. Valentino is online, what times of the day Dr. Valentino is tweeting, putting LinkedIn posts on, Facebook posts, because 
he's left such a footprint for me to follow that I know if you're tweeting every Wednesday at noon, every Wednesday at 11, I'm going to push out something that you might want to tweet about. (laughs) And so it's that obvious. And we're not harnessing that in medical. And I think it's something that we just want to keep in mind compliantly, of course. Thank you to our panelists for providing their perspectives on traditional and novel tactics. I hope you all walk away with valuable guidance to help your strategic planning and implementation. This has been the third podcast in a series of medical affairs plans from strategic planning to measuring impact. In our fourth podcast, we will talk about measuring the success of our plans. If you're not yet a MAPS member and would like access to additional resources in this area, please visit the MAPS website to start joining today at medicalaffairs.org backslash membership.